Much of what the United States moved to establish in the post-World War II era is, whether we realize it or not, now under an enhanced and a significant and a serious threat. This episode is sponsored by Etched Communication, a full-service public relations and crisis management firm. Connect with Etched via their website at etchedcom.com. That's E-T-C-H-E-D-C-O-M-M.com. Our guest today on Our Voices Matter is Jesse Morton. Jesse is the co-founder of Parallel Networks and a former recruiter for Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Uh, Jesse is actually in Istanbul, Turkey, as we are uh, conducting this interview. This is about a week or so after uh, President Trump made the decision to withdraw the U.S. troops from Syria. Um, Jesse, you also are working now with the U.S. government or the FBI, I should say. So could you tell, could you tell our audience um, exactly what it is you're doing? And then we'll find out why you're in Turkey and what your thoughts are about the troop withdrawal. Well, I actually spent a long uh, portion working with the FBI, but now I partner with the former director of intelligence at the NYPD that monitored me for seven years of my life to do civil society organizing based around countering violent extremism domestically and internationally. And so I'm here to present at a conference. The conference was arranged several months ago, and it is a EU funded conference that was to determine exactly what we were to do with people that were returning from uh, ISIS, uh, from the West, and to figure out how to best reintegrate and rehabilitate them. The problem now is that the dynamics have become more complicated because those prisons and those prisoners that were um, being uh, housed by the Kurds that we were supporting have now been taken over essentially by uh, the Syrian uh, government uh, and are being backed by both Iran and Russia in a massive pullout. And so the dynamics of the conference will certainly change. Um, And also we're here also just to network with regard to some of the work that we're doing on promoting very different paradigmatic way to look at the war on terror 18 years in and watching it uh, split the fabric of democracy and the liberal order asunder everywhere. When you heard about the troop withdrawal from Syria, first the the 50 original troops and then the subsequent decision to remove basically all of our troops from from Syria, what were your thoughts? From a strategic perspective, I think that it's safe to say that it uh, may very well end up in the long term to be a blunder. Um, I think that day by day, we have to be more balanced and calculative in our response. There is some way to sort of fix things, but it would require uh, a very different way about thinking how we engage in the international arena. The number one issue I think that it, it, it speaks to is the changing nature of the geopolitical reality, um, particularly with Donald uh, Trump at the helm of, of, of the U.S. government. Um, it seemed like it was an emotional decision, not based with much uh, reference to what he decided to uh, call the military industrial complex in a way to appease his base. I'm not so sure it wasn't more a domestic uh, re-election decision uh, to speak to the base of the alternative conservative community. But I do know that with regard to a resurgence of ISIS and with regard to giving ISIS an image uh, in the media, particularly that they will resurrect themselves now, it is a incredibly valuable uh, recruitment tool. You were one of the people who literally helped create the architecture for, for recruiting for ISIS. Um, given your history and your background, help 
help us understand the context of what this means for a caliphate that they are trying to create. Okay, so one of the things that is being promoted and that has been being promoted, but now is gaining more traction and stickiness is this phrase from the Quran, that the end is for the true believers. And the idea is that they're waging a war of attrition that was started by Osama bin Laden. And Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the so-called caliph, released a, right after Christ Church attack in New Zealand, released a video where he showed himself in video for the first time since he announced the caliphate. And he declared, endorsed Osama bin Laden's war of attrition mentality, saying that we're going to wind them down in the Middle East, create the void, manage the savagery and resurrect ourselves. So this is something that they knew from the time they announced their caliphate, that they were planting an ideological and an intellectual seed. They knew that they had a high unlikelihood of being able to sustain a state, but figured that if they could fight diligently enough to uh, force us to uh, exhaust resources, that it would be part and parcel of a war of attrition. Now what you see is a declaration that the geopolitical situation is so fragile that the end is near. And so what we see incessantly on pro-ISIS communication platforms, not Facebook, not Twitter, but more uh, encrypted platforms such as Telegram and other avenues, is a celebration that this is an indicator uh, that they are about to resurrect themselves. And this is what makes um, propaganda very powerful, is everybody loves a strong horse. And so when you can portray defeat as victory, which is something that the jihadists have always been able to do. And in my era, we were talking about working toward a caliphate. So we would constantly portray every place, as Osama bin Laden put it, all I have to do is send two mujahideen to anywhere in the farthest corners of the earth to wave the black flag of Al-Qaeda. And the United States will race there to exhaust its resources in order to deplete that threat. And so this is essentially part of a long-term strategy. These people are fighting a generational conflict, and we tend to view it uh, according to Sunday news cycles or according to re-election campaigns. And this is really the dangerous component uh, we face. When we spoke uh, in our first interview a few weeks ago, um, you, you talked about how basically what we as a society here in the U.S. are doing is playing into the hands, into the playbook that Osama bin Laden and others laid out for the destruction of our democracy, correct? For the destruction of democracy in general, yes. In general, in general, not just here in the U.S., but just the concept of democracy. Exactly. And now that, that these most recent events have taken place are unfolding as we speak in Syria, I mean, at this very moment, uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo just wrapped up his meeting with uh, President uh, Erdogan of, of Turkey, um, asking for a ceasefire, um, which we don't necessarily expect will, will happen. Um, what, what does all of this mean for the long term, especially in light of the fact that President Trump has said repeatedly that this is not our war, our troops shouldn't be there, this is not going to affect us? <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, it, it, unfortunately, uh, he doesn't understand the intricacies of the geopolitical arena, obviously, because it's not so much about the Kurds and the atrocities committed against them by the Turks. That's one thing of violating principles that should be akin to democracy. If you believe in democratic principles, then you protect your allies and you stick with your allies until the end. 
a drastic rampant pullout like that was catastrophe for the Kurds potentially. But everyone who had any sort of strategic understanding of the region knew that this is an opening for Russia, who's backed by Iran and who's backed by the dictator of Bashar al-Assad, who's a genocidal maniac. And this is a fact. This is something that gets downplayed by a lot of people that are pro-Trump, is that Bashar al-Assad is actually someone who's just a secularist. Uh, The reality of the situation now is that we have the encroachment and the spreading influence of Iran, not only into the Iraq state infrastructure, but through their paramilitary forces in Lebanon, in uh, in in Iraq general, uh, and particularly now in eastern Syria, where the Iranian militias will come in and will play a major role in assisting the Assad regime. And Russia will certainly provide all of the support it needs to prevent any move by Turkey to control anything other than the strip they claim that they want to control. But the geopolitical balance totally alters. And what we have to think about is if we understand the liberal order as something that is put together holistically from a financial infrastructure, from a pro-democracy, pro-human rights infrastructure established in the United Nations, much of what the United States moved to establish in the post-World War II era is, whether we realize it or not, now under an enhanced and a significant and a serious threat. The work that you are doing with Parallel Networks um, I'm going to let you explain it. We we did talk about it in our in our earlier interview, but basically you're you're sort of taking the the strategy and the tactics that terrorist organizations use, and you're reverse engineering it for good. Yes. Um, so how does what is going on now affect how you are going to do your work from this point going forward? So we have very specific targeted intervention programs that are based on evidence-driven practices from a nascent field called countering violent extremism. That means that I work with a collective of individuals to create messages, to speak, to prevent people from progressing into the realm of violent extremist ideologies, whether they're jihadist, far right-wing extremists or whatnot. I work with other former neo-Nazis. I work with former left-wing extremists. I work with former uh, 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 sort of uh, alt-writers. I also work with victims of extremism. And what we do is we provide targeted interventions for those individuals that are on their way. But we know that in isolation, that doesn't work alone. So all of our work at the specific tailored level is embedded in a broader ecosystemic approach, which what we have to see, I see there's a very clear direct correlation between the rise of radicalization, right? And distinguishing that from violent extremist behavior, that we have to address the underlying root causal factors of this radicalism, both on the far right and on the far left that is feeding and fueling each other. And it is ripping us apart at the seams. And so what we talk about is a platform that can take a pause. We have a platform that explains it perfectly. It's called Control-Alt-Delete-Hate. And to control is to control that space between stimulus and response and to look at how if I react to an extremist or a radical or a radical decision like the ability to pull out of of, of Syria, how can I sit in that space and not be emotional? How can I push through those emotions and come up with a way of responding to that with a heightened level of consciousness? One thing uh, about the control space is crises then becomes an opportunity to learn more about yourself, but to look collectively at better ways to strategize. So control goes into alt, and alt is to alter course. And I think one thing that we're recognizing, the more and more research we do on countering violent extremism, is that a person can experience the same sort of significance 
the same sort of identity, the same sort of camaraderie and purpose and meaning that they get from violent extremist organizations if we establish networks that are parallel to those extremist organizations, right, but that are built on antithetical principles to hate and extremism. And so what we're trying to do is organize a collective network that can become a movement. These things take time. It took a long time for me to build the English language jihadi messaging infrastructure, but it became a collective comprehensive worldview. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to get the most appropriate people engaged, the most appropriate voices involved. We're trying to formulate a network that's built on principles. We call them three. The promotion of global democratic identity, that the world of the nation state is either people are fearing change and they want to revert back to nationalism, which is dangerous, or they're so proactive and so disheartened by what they've experienced in their life, they want to completely tear down democratic nation state identity. We promote the idea of a, of a democratic na nationalism that sort of expands to include all of mankind. The second, after the promotion of a global democratic identity, then we call for creative pacifism, that art and creativity is what distinguishes mankind from the rest of species. And it's our ability to create and our ability to tap into higher creative principles that can allow us to establish the sustainable change that runs contrary to the destruction that comes about from violent extremists trying to change things overnight. That transitioned into an enlightened humanism. An enlightened humanism is a very serious critique of how we have become a very science-driven society, but don't look at the limitations of science and what it's doing to our community with regard to our ability to, tr to, to, to connect with each other at a very human, real quality and depth level. I think sometimes media is very overly reductionist. There's too much attention to, you know, um, sex and gore and violence. And it really is a problem where we're finding ourselves in a world where we're living in a virtual reality reality where we're not understanding how to connect as authentic human beings with one another. So when we encapsulate that into all of our program designs, those three principles, then we can impart the third component of the control-alt-delete-hate paradigm, which is that in this day and age, we have to realize that the liberal order is threatened and that each and every single one of us at a very localized level and at a national and an international and a global level has a role to do whatever we can do in order to salvage it because it's worth salvaging and it's worth fighting for, not fighting with violence, but the only way we can preserve it is to heighten our intellect, as Albert Einstein said, to a no problem has ever been solved by attacking it at the same level of consciousness that has created it. You said a moment ago that what you're trying to create, what you have created, um, and then the, the actual movement itself takes time. And for a lot of people, it feels like we're running out of time. People Indeed. are afraid. When we, when we see what's going on, um, and even, even President Trump's loyal Republican allies are speaking out against this because they understand the enormity of what this means once ISIS has has basically come back together and the resurgence has happened. What is your message to those of us who are feeling afraid and who understand the enormity of this and know that, um, you know, we've already been attacked and we can be attacked again, that terrorists do not respect borders. What, what is your, your, um, your message to all of us, given your multifaceted perspective on this issue? The message for each and every single one of us is to recognize that what extremists offer their recruits is significance, purpose, meaning, sense of belonging in an identity. 
And so many of us are lacking that in our lives, particularly in these confusing times. And so it's imperative that, unfortunately, we reverse engineer the sort of community that's offered by extremists and offer one that's built on antithetical principles. We need to get involved in developing national networks. We need to get involved in developing local networks, global networks that are all built upon the idea that we have to act. There's a lethargy right now in the air of driven by fear. But one thing that we do know for certain is that if we sit back and we just simply stay passive and assume that in November of next year, things will get better because of a re-election. And that's not the way to move forward. Democracies can only thrive and flourish when an educated, informed, and conscious citizenry undergirds them. And I think that there's a big reason that we have a phenomenon like a populist like Donald Trump, um, that we have sort of sat back and grown complacent Uh, I think a lot of us expect that the world that we grew up in and experienced is uh, a given and we take it for granted. And when we start to really think about the value of things, me, for a person who used to critique those that would speak against Islam and critique those who were non-Muslim and hate those who were pro-American system, I have come through my experiences in life to understand that the world is not a perfect place. But number two, what the United States and its allies built after World War II is worth fighting for. The system upon which the liberal world order exists is something that we should no longer take for granted. And that if enough of us can get up and each one can teach one and we can get that momentum to spread, the crisis can become an opportunity. And fear is not a solution because fear typically drives that black and white reversal to steer back into tribalism. We have to pause in this moment and we have to say, what is it that I can do that makes sense? Look around me and see what is it that I can do? What skills, what talents, what interests do I have? And find organizations like ours and others and to contribute in ways. Your podcast, for example, is very crucial. Media, good media, thorough media with some depth, with some detail to promote critical thinking. Because unfortunately, we've slipped into a point where we're... Uh, We're conscious of the value, I think, to a degree, but I don't think, particularly amongst our youth, that we appreciate exactly what the system that we live under today stands for and represents. And I don't think we have a good understanding of how many people are both at home and abroad completely hateful of that system and want to tear it down and are working diligently, passionately and dedicatedly, whether it's ISIS, whether it's authoritarian regimes, whether it's, you know, autocrats in the Arab world, they all despise democracy because none of them would be able to retain the type of power that they have. And so democracy is for the people. It's government for the people and it's by the people, but it's only as good as the people. When Benjamin Franklin walked out of the Constitutional Hall in 1776, uh, in, 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 seven, in, in 1789, they, in they, uh, a woman in the crowd asked him in the streets, Broad Street of Philadelphia, what, sir, have you given us? They had just ratified the Constitution. He said, we've given you a republic, ma'am, if you can keep it. If and this thing that we have lost track of, you have to fight to keep democracy. And you don't fight with sticks and stones or bullets and bombs. You fight with hearts and minds. And we've lost the significance of that battle. And if we don't wake up soon, we're going to remember it when it's too late. 
Well, you've just given us our call to action. And um, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you uh, taking the time to speak with us from the other side of the world. Um, I wish you the best in your conference um, in Istanbul. And uh, we will be watching and listening and paying attention to everything that is going on. And hopefully um, this conversation will help raise the consciousness of those who are watching and listening. And, and um, I just urge everybody out there to act. As Jesse says, we cannot be complacent. This government is ours. It is of the people, by the people, for the people. It is going to live or die with the people. And um, we can't afford to sit back and just watch it happen. So be engaged, have empathy for your fellow human, talk, and um, together we can we can work this out. Yes, indeed. It, it can be done. It can be it can done. It can be done. All right. Jesse, thank you thank so you much. Thank you so much. Take and care. thank you God for bless. taking the time to watch and listen. We'll see you next time.